Access Utah. I'm uh, talking with Emil Kerenyi. He is Applied Research Scholar with the Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. He has a Ph.D. in history from University of Michigan, and he works at the Holocaust Museum. His talk, which he gave recently uh, for the USU Religious Studies Program, which is part of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at USU, his keynote address, part of a four-part symposium on the Holocaust, was Jewish Responses to the Holocaust, From Spiritual and Religious Practices to Armed Resistance. Dr. Kerenyi, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be here. Tell us a little bit about what you do at the Holocaust Memorial Museum. So, as you may know, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum is a government, federal government institution dedicated to preserving the memory of the Holocaust. I work at the part of the museum, which is called the Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies, whose mission is to make sure that there is vibrant scholarship on the academic level on the Holocaust. And that goal, we organize uh, symposia, workshops, conferences, and have uh, uh, also vibrant publishing activity. And my job is to work on one of the large publishing projects. And the goal of this particular project is to produce a new five-volume history of the Holocaust, which is based on the study of specifically Jewish, contemporary Jewish sources, contemporary meaning from that period. So not Nazi documents or post-war accounts or memoirs, but the documents that were produced at the time. And, And the idea behind this project is to redress what has traditionally been an imbalance for very specific historical reasons about which I talked in my address at the university, in which scholars have studied the Holocaust and have tended to focus for good historiographical reasons on primary documents left by perpetrators and perpetrator agencies. We seek to produce a history of the Holocaust that takes into account the voices of the victims. Uh, This must be very interesting. And and as with any primary document at the time, it's uh, it's confused. These people don't have the benefit of 2020 hindsight. Exactly. That's exactly one of the main... It's it's a challenge, but it's also, I think, an advantage when uh, somebody who studies um, these documents, we seek to show that the Holocaust was experienced by different people affected in different ways. And it was not as it's usually understood by people to be kind of a volcanic eruption or a tsunami-like wave that suddenly came and swept everything away. No, different lines and chronologies of persecution, while related, were also separate depending on different national contexts, and people had different reactions, as people everywhere and always do, based on their personal histories, their inevitably imperfect understanding of of historical circumstances in which they found themselves. And so we try to encompass and rescue this diversity and wide range of Jewish reactions to Mm. unfolding persecution. So this is under a broader umbrella of Jewish responses to persecution in general. Right. I wonder, very confused times, of course, and and the Jews in Europe would have put this in a context of, uh, here we go again, this is more persecution, but I don't know if they they could have imagined, no, nobody could, the, the extent of the Holocaust, could they? Well, the the Holocaust has certainly been, it was an unprecedented way of persecution that Jews experienced. And although some commentators at the time understood what was going on within the larger framework in which all Jewish thinkers were conversant, which was this large long-term view of Jewish history as a history of persecution, some commentators and thinkers and ordinary people realized also at that very time that this was unprecedented and that it had never actually happened before. We try to include in our series both 
we we do not judge. We do not say these people were naive or these people were extremely intelligent and could see what was coming. We just try to show that the complex nature of persecution and the different um, experiences. Now, I want to take a minute and talk a little bit about one group in the Warsaw Ghetto that did understand very early that what was going on was unprecedented and had never happened before in Jewish history, even though it was riddled with waves of persecution in the past. In 1940, when the Warsaw Ghetto was, we say, closed, when the wall was built and the Jews were, some 400,000 Jews were forced to live in this segregated ghetto in Warsaw, a Polish-Jewish historian by the name of Emanuel Ringelblum who had a secular education and a PhD in history from the University of Warsaw and who had written about the history of Polish Jews, realized that these measures, even though they also fit into this larger narrative of Jewish persecution throughout history, is somehow different. This time it is unprecedented. And he founded this society that was called Oinek Shabbos, whose goal was to collect as many documents and sources as they could so that they create a kind of an archive, a repository, which will serve a future historian who will write about the history of Jews under German occupation. And basically, they very consciously set to create this archive. So they collected different writings from the ghetto. People would write essays or poems or analyses of what was going on. They collected testimonies from Jews who were refugees from other ghettos and ended up in the Warsaw Ghetto. They collected testimonies also from people who had succeeded once the deportations to death camp, to Treblinka, which was this death camp about 100 miles from Warsaw that was built specifically to, in 1942, murder hundreds of thousands of Warsaw Jews. They also recorded testimonies of people who managed to escape uh, from this camp. And so very self-consciously decided to create this archive in order to have the material once this unprecedented thing is over. Of course, there was no name for that because it was unprecedented today. We call it the Holocaust or the Shoah, but people then did not have a name for what was going on. And in the hope that somebody would find it and write a history of Jews during the occupation, they stuffed these thousands of documents into uh, metal containers and buried them in the ghetto uh, in 1943. In 1945 and 46, after the war, the two sole surviving members of this society roamed through the rubble of Warsaw and found these containers. And this is how one is still missing, but the, the bulk of the collection is there. And it's housed at the Jewish Historical Institute in Warsaw, and there also all these materials are digitally available at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum mm -hmm. in Washington, and it's an invaluable resource for the study for the kind of study we are doing at the museum. You're saying that this sort of study, the Jewish response, has been neglected. You're trying to rectify that that now. So, what what sorts of things are you learning, and and how will this shape our understanding of of these times? So, when I say neglected, I'm referring to the mainstream and bulk of Holocaust scholarship. Of course, there have been attempts to write the history by focusing on the sources produced by the victims. Not that it's not, never been done before. However, at the museum, we take a systematic approach and try to show that the full understanding of the Holocaust and persecution is impossible without taking into consideration the voices of the victims. Thanks to the long six or seven decades of scholarship that have somehow that has privileged the accounts left by the bureaucratic Nazi agencies or other perpetrator institutions, we know the logistics of the Holocaust. We know how and when it was organized, who carried it out, mostly, who participated, who collaborated, and even the different dynamics of this process. But I think the significance of our project that we're doing at the museum is 
to complicate this view from below and to show, as I said, that the Holocaust was a very complex, diverse phenomenon that was not experienced by everyone in the same way. And we want to encompass all these diverse voices, not only because of this ethical urgency to give a voice to the victims and to rescue their individuality from this way in which victims have been perceived in Holocaust scholarship as these faceless multitudes of Jews that was actually a Nazi view of seeing the Jews as this eternally the same undifferentiated faceless mass of people. We want to return individuality and voice to the individuals and also show that there were different Jews at different times and different people who experienced this differently. That's a great lead-in uh, to telling a story or two, and you have you brought some at least uh, excerpts from some of these documents. I'll have you have you do that. Uh, just uh, reintroduce you. We were talking with uh, Emil Kerenyi. He is a uh, scholar. He is applied research scholar at the Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington D.C. And uh, he was recently on the USU campus to give a keynote address, a part of four events as part of a Holocaust symposia series. Uh, his address titled Jewish Responses to the Holocaust, From Spiritual and Religious Practices to Armed Resistance. And uh, coming up in this series, by the way, on uh, March 28th, a film, Witness, Voices from the Holocaust, and then we'll have some uh, speakers there. On April 4th, a uh, talk. What can Mormons in the U.S. learn from the case of Mormons in the Third Reich? And uh, some uh, speakers there. And then on uh, April 11th, Encountering Dr. Mengele. And uh, that'll be an event, uh, a talk on forgiveness by uh, Ava Kaur, who was a victim of Dr. Joseph Mengele's uh, sinister medical experiments on twins in Auschwitz. And this is all a part of a series from the USU Religious Studies uh, program. That's a part of the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences. And we're talking with Emil Kerenyi on, on the program. More with Emil Kerenyi coming up following the break. Support for Access Utah comes from the Utah Humanities Council, enriching cultural, intellectual, and civic life by providing opportunities for all Utahns to explore life's most engaging questions and the wonders of the human experience. Have you ever asked yourself, am I going crazy? The notion is that if you see things or hear things, you're going mad. But as a physician, I have to try and define what's going on and to reassure people that they're not going insane. I'm Guy Raz, the place between madness and sanity. It's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Coming up at 10 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Emil Kerenyi, an applied research scholar at the Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. He studies uh, primary documents from the time. And uh, a recent lecture that he gave at the USU is a part of a series on the Holocaust. His keynote address recent uh, on the USU campus was Jewish Responses to the Holocaust from Spiritual and Religious Practices to Armed Resistance. This is a part of a series from the USU's Religious Studies Program and USU Department of History. Who do you have to, uh, to talk about here? I would like to read from an excerpt from an account about his experience at Treblinka by Abram Jakub Krzepicki, who gave this testimony in December of 1942 and January of 1943 in the Warsaw Ghetto. Let me just step back a little bit and mention that I mentioned Emanuel Ringelblum's Oymek Shabbos project, which was supposed to create an archive that would serve a post-war historian as a source of writing about Jews under German occupation. One of the activities of this archive, of this organization, was to collect testimonies by people who either were refugees from other places in Poland or uh, had managed to escape from Treblinka which was a death camp close to Warsaw. And in the summer of 1942, from late July through late September of 42, the Germans deported about 260,000 Jews to Treblinka. Most of them were gassed on arrival and immediately killed. 
one of the people who managed to avoid being killed by being assigned, there were all these dirty auxiliary tasks in a death camp where a certain number of people who are strong and young are selected to do for a while and then later they're killed. Kshepitsky was one of them and he spent about 18 days in Treblinka after which he managed to escape, slip back into the Warsaw Ghetto and he related what he saw in Treblinka to one of the activists of Oynek Shabbos, whose name is Rachel Auerbach, who was one of the two people who survived. So I'm going to read from his testimony just a brief biographical note. Chepitsky was about 20 years old when the war broke out in 1939, when Germany occupied, invaded Poland. Uh, he was drafted into the Polish army, taken prisoner of war by the Germans, later released, and uh, after which he settled in Warsaw. In August of 1942, during this large wave of deportations that I mentioned, he was deported to Treblinka. He was there for 18 days, escaped, and gave this testimony in Warsaw. He, after this, in early 1943, he joined uh, Organizacja Bojowa, which is the Polish name for the Jewish combat organization, which was this underground Jewish army that was preparing a major act of resistance to the Germans and which organized the famous Warsaw Ghetto uprising in April of 1943. And this year, on April 19th, it will be the 70th anniversary of this uprising. And he died, Krzepicki died, was killed in, in, in the uprising. So what I'm going to read now is his testimony, his deposition recorded by Rachel Auerbach from Oynek Shabbos in December of 42 and January of 1943. The doors of the cars were opened by Ukrainians. There were also German SS men standing around with whips in their hands. Many of the people in the car were still lying on the floor, unconscious. Some of them were probably no longer alive. We had been on the way for about 20 hours. If the trip had gone on for another half day, the number of dead would have been a great deal larger we would have perished from heat and lack of air. As I later learned, when some of the transports arrived at Treblinka and were unloaded, it was found that all the passengers were dead. When the doors of our car were opened, some of the people who had been lying half-naked tried to put on some clothing, but not all of them were given a chance to throw on their clothes. At the command of the SS men, Ukrainians jumped onto the cars and used their whips to drive the crowd out of the boxcars as quickly as possible. We left the cars tired and exhausted. After traveling for so many hours in semi-darkness, we were momentarily blinded by the sun. It was 5 p.m., but the day's heat was at full strength. As we looked around, we saw countless piles of rags. The sight stabbed our hearts. So many clothes, but where were the people? We began to recall stories we had heard of Lublin, Kolo, Turek, and we said to each other, Jews, this is no good, they've got us. They drove us faster, faster. Through another exit, guarded by a Ukrainian, we left the platform area and entered the fenced-off area where the two barracks were located. One of the Germans rapped out a command, Women and children to the left, men to the right. A little later, two Jews were stationed there as interpreters to show the crowd where to go. We men were told to sit down outside along the length of the barrack on the right. The women all went into the barrack on the left, and as we later learned, they were told at once to strip naked, and we were driven out of the barrack through another door. From there, they entered a narrow path lined on either side with barbed wire. This path led through a small grove, to the buildings that housed the gas chamber. Only a few minutes later, we could hear the terrible screams, but we could not see anything because the trees of the grove blocked our view. Here we beheld a horrible sight. Countless dead bodies lay there, piled upon each other. I think that perhaps 10,000 bodies were there. A terrible stench hovered in the air. Most of the bodies had horribly bloated bellies. They were covered with brown and black spots, swollen and the surfaces of their skin already crawling with worms. The lips of most of the dead were strangely twisted and the tips of their tongues could be seen protruding between the swollen lips. The mouths resembled those of dead fish. I later learned that most of these people had died of suffocation in the boxcar. Their mouths had remained open as if they were still struggling for a little air. Many of the dead still had their eyes open. 
500 meters farther away, a machine was at work digging ditches. This machine, together with its motor, was as big as a railroad car. Its mechanical shovels were digging up piles of dirt. The machine loaded the dirt into little wagons, which turned away and dumped it onto the side. Things were humming out there on that big field. Many Jews had already been working there earlier. They were dragging corpses into the ditches, which had been dug for them by the machine. We could also see Jews pushing carts piled up with bodies towards the big ditches and the edge of the field. There it was again, that stench. They were all running, pursued by Germans, Ukrainians, and even Jewish group leaders called Kapos, who kept driving them on. Faster, faster. All the while, we could hear the crack of pistols and rifles and the whine of bullets. But there were no cries or groans from those who were shot, because the Germans shot them from the back in the neck. In that way, the person drops that quick as lightning and never even has a chance to make his voice heard one last time. There were various kinds of ditches in that place. At a distance, running parallel with the outermost camp fence, there were three giant mass graves in which the dead were arranged in layers. Closer to the barracks, a somewhat smaller ditch had been dug. This was where our 60 men were put to work. A group of workers walked around the area, dusting the corpses with chlorine powder. I should point out that none of the gassing victims were buried in this area, only those who died in the transports or who had been shot on arrival in the camp before entering the showers. It's powerful, powerful personal witness. Yeah. Uh, I should point out this is a part of uh, a series from the Holocaust Museum, Jewish response to the, to the Holocaust. Yes. Right. And, and these, I uh, imagine you can, you can find this information at the website. Uh, yes, you can find the information at our website, www.ushmm.org. Also, two volumes in this series are already available, and the third will be published shortly, so you can uh, look for them as well. I would just like to add that this account was translated from Yiddish into English and published in will be published in volume four of this series, which will be out next year. The importance of this document is to show that people already knew in late 1942 and early 1943 about the genocidal nature of Nazi persecution. It is not clear. Obviously, people had different access to information. It was not the same whether you were somebody deported to Treblinka and managed to escape like Kshepitsky did, or, for example, an official of uh, World Jewish Congress with an office of Geneva who was collecting information from various witnesses and had access to governments, um, including the U.S. government, and could have a broader and more systematic view of the persecution. But at that time already, people, many people and many such accounts have surfaced, and so some people could already connect the dots in that time period. How widely do you think... This was the knowledge was spread. Well, um, it, it wasn't. I, I'm doubtful that the full genocide that many people had a full view and the understanding of the magnitude of the Holocaust. Many Polish Jews, for example, probably imagined that what was going on was confined to Polish Jewry, whereas it went much further. It was a European wide project, and Germans even never got around to doing it but they planned attack and murdering the Jewish communities who were outside of Europe, such as, for example, in, in Palestine, the Jewish communities in Palestine or in North Africa at the time, which were spared because of the vicissitudes of the war and because the Allies had managed to ward off uh, these German advances. So there were different understandings of this, but it's also worth pointing out that the Holocaust took place mass murder took place in full view, even in situations where the Germans tried to keep it a secret, such as, for example, building a secluded killing center such as Treblinka. Nobody had heard about Treblinka before 1942. That's just a little village that nobody has ever heard of. Um, And transporting large numbers of people, even in those situations where the Germans obviously tried to keep it a secret, 
the sheer magnitude of this guaranteed that there would be people who would escape or who would see something they're not supposed to see. So, mm-hmm. so these voices cropped up, and, and certainly um, the non-Jews also could see that something was going on, the Germans were not up to good, and mm-hmm. that they were persecuting and, and killing the Jews. Speaking of which, after the war, of course, and, you know, sometimes much further after, people wondered why didn't the Allied governments do more faster to stop this because some of this was getting out uh, surely to to some of the governments. Were there was there any talk in in some of these documents of that sort of uh, wondering? Uh, not in the documents. I mean, there are many people who are directly affected by the Holocaust and who obviously did not understand how is this possible, why is nobody doing anything to help us, and who tried to think along those lines and could not understand, but were also powerless to affect this. And then there were also international Jewish organizations, such as the World Jewish Congress or the Jewish American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, which was and still is today the largest American Jewish humanitarian organization who tried to influence governments to stop this and help the Jews. Unfortunately, this was not possible for many reasons, some of which include bureaucratic obstruction or even anti-Semitic leanings, but most of which, in my view, have to do with simply priorities of winning the war. And unfortunately, the Holocaust and what was happening to the Jews was mostly not the priority. Having said that, there were many instances in which different governments, allied governments, from the U.S. government to British government to even lesser governments in exile, such as the Yugoslav government, provided aid to Jews when they could and in little ways they could. Mm -hmm. And including private citizens who who stepped in and did did what they could. Exactly, Jewish and non-Jewish. And and non-Jewish. And speaking of the Jewish uh, response to the Holocaust, uh, the title of your talk, um, uh, From Spiritual and Religious Practices to Armed Resistance, we've talked about some armed resistance. In fact, the the man you talked to us about read the excerpt. Uh, He escaped, who was a part of the Warsaw Uprising. That's where he died. What were some of the other responses? So for the longest time after the war, both scholars of the Holocaust and people just in general were thinking about this question of resistance and why is it that the Jews did not resist. I should point out that the evidence, just studying the enormous uh, source base, uh, which I do every day at work, Uh, does not support this view. There were numerous instances of Jewish resistance. Of course, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising was the most widely known one, but there were resistance, similar armed resistance actions in many other ghettos. There were 18 major ghettos in which resistance took place and many other lesser kinds of existence took place in many other ghettos in German occupied Europe. And that's just speaking about organized resistance. And when we, even when we speak about organized resistance, we need to keep in mind that this was, at the time, after years of Nazi laws and practices that were aimed specifically to exclude the Jews from society, to separate them from the social fabric, to increase the social distance between them and their neighbors. So in many ways, it's actually quite miraculous that we have, that there were so many instances of organized armed resistance. There were other instances of individual actions that were just, I don't know that resistance is the right word for that, but there were thousands of of documented cases in, in, in letters and diary entries that I'm reading about of People reacting, so, for example, just hitting their tormentors by, you know, their bare arms or stabbing them with knives or blowing themselves up in German cafes and restaurants or doing anything, those desperate acts that in the grand scheme of things did not really affect anything but were a very violent and strong reaction to the humiliation and 
dehumanization that to which they were subjected. So that was about the question of resistance. That said, there were other kinds of response to the persecution, and that's one of the goals of our research at the museum, is to include those as well and to posit and show that armed resistance was not the only way of responding to this, that there were various other kinds of things that people did from reflection and withdrawing into themselves and writing, just documenting what was going on, such as the Oynek Shabbos archive and other documentary initiatives that were going on in many other places, to simple acts like escaping or hiding or doing anything that was designed to counter the anti-Jewish measures to which people were subjected at that time. So this is a very broad spectrum that certainly includes armed resistance but encompasses many other kinds of responses and we aim to capture all these in our series. Mm. We're talking with uh, Emil Kerenyi who is an applied research scholar at the Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. He was on the USU campus recently to give a keynote address as a part of a symposium series. And uh, the symposium series is sponsored by USU's Religious Studies Program, part of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at USU. Uh, It's a four-part symposium on the Holocaust. Uh, Keynote address that he gave was Jewish Responses to the Holocaust from Spiritual and Religious Practices to Armed Resistance. Coming up, there are other events in this series, a film, Witness, Voices from the Holocaust, and there'll be some speakers there as well. That's on March 28th. All of these events in Old Main, Room 121. Uh, So uh, April 4th, a talk, What Can Mormons in the U.S. Learn from the Case of Mormons in the Third Reich? And on April 13th, the final event in this series, Encountering Dr. Mengele, which is a talk on forgiveness by Ava Kaur, victim of Dr. Joseph Mengele's sinister medical experiments on twins at uh, Auschwitz. Uh, And uh, we're talking about a project from the Holocaust Museum, Jewish response to persecution, Jewish response to the Holocaust. And Dr. Karenyi works with uh, primary documents, very interesting We'll be back with more with Emil Kerenyi after this. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts, celebrating 20 years this season with fiddling and step dancing as Natalie McMaster comes to Logan. This Wednesday at 7.30, information is at ellenecclestheater.org. On the next On Being, acoustic biologist Katie Payne. She was among the first scientists to discover that whales are, as she says, composers of song. In recent years, she's decoded the language of elephants. We hear what she's learned about life in this world from two of its most mysterious creatures. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join me from APM. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Emil Kerenyi, who's an applied research scholar at the Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. He was in Logan recently to give a keynote address as a part of a series on the Holocaust, uh, sponsored by the USU Religious Studies Program and the USU Department of History. And his address was titled, Jewish Responses to the Holocaust, From Spiritual and Religious Practices to Armed Resistance. I wonder if any of the other people stand out to you. You you study this every day. You meet people through their words. There must be some people that stand out to you. Uh, well, I think one of the people that I already mentioned is Emanuel Ringelblum, who created this archive by collecting documents from the Warsaw Ghetto as the persecution was unfolding. I would like in this context to mention, I mentioned already that this archive, this archival collection, which is housed in its physical form at the Jewish Historical Institute in Warsaw, uh, is also fully available digitally at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. And I would just like to add here, that, which I don't suppose many people know, that the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum houses an enormous archive of Holocaust related materials, millions and millions of pages of documents, 
from national, regional, and local archives in Europe and elsewhere, not only in Europe, but we have archival collections from countries as diverse and far away as Argentina and Morocco and Japan, for example. And they're mostly available either as microfilms or even increasingly digitally. So for scholars who would like, who want to study the Holocaust, scholars interested in studying the Holocaust have this very accessible, enormous archival collection at the Holocaust Memorial Museum to which they can come and do their research. And as one of the missions of the Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies is to support academic-level research on the Holocaust, we also have a fellowship program. Every year brings between uh, around 25 people, scholars of the Holocaust, ranging from advanced graduate students who have not yet completed their doctoral projects to senior seasoned scholars who have widely published on the Holocaust to do research and utilize the the resources that we have. So it's a very vibrant intellectual and academic environment. So I, as somebody who reads these documents from many, many different archival collections and in languages ranging from just for my own research, I do research in Slavic languages and Yiddish and Hebrew and German. I read many different accounts scattered across countries and archival collections. And what I enjoy is the wrong word, obviously, but what I appreciate every day at doing uh, my work is to that I'm able to find traces of people's lives in their own words, in different languages, and of people who we usually call ordinary people. I think that a misleading adjective because I usually I don't distinguish people between ordinary and extraordinary people. I try to be inclusive and to understand and to see how people affected by this thing that they didn't have a name for, and they didn't quite understand how they dealt with it and coped with it on a day-to-day basis. So basically, to a little simplistically, but may sound a little simplistically, but I tried to study Jewish life during the Holocaust mm-hmm. and not just Jewish death, about mm-hmm. on which most Holocaust scholars have focused. Mm. It seems like this is a very human impulse, that these people that you're studying their desire was to be remembered, right? We all have this desire, remember me, see my life as important. Right. You know, notice me that I I was here and I made an impact. Right. Some of of people whose accounts I read certainly had that impulse. Some diarists especially started writing their diaries at that time in order so that we hoping that the diaries would survive even when their authors wouldn't to bear witness to what happened. Other times, this does not feature in the text. And I think most people, as people everywhere in terrible situations, they just wanted to see how they could get out of this and to survive. And they sometimes it's more telling, for example, that there are diaries from the Lodge ghetto, uh, specifically one diary from that I can also read an excerpt from. Yes, That's all right. From Irene Hauser, for example, who was a Jewish woman from Vienna who was deported to the Woj ghetto in uh, 1941, whose style of writing is very telegraphic and, and, and filled with this desperate urgency. So in this case, it's more telling to me as someone who is studying this not only what the author is writing about, but how the moments and the circumstances of the production of the text tell you something about this period. And I will just read several sentences from her diary, which sound disjointed and not very pretty in a literary sense. But that in itself is a testament to the circumstances in which the text was written and produced. This was not somebody who was sitting at her desk contemplating about great historical events. This was somebody who was starving and who was trying to get 
another meal for herself and her family. So I'm, I'm just going to write several sentences so that you just get a sense of what it sounds like. September 2, 1942. No rain for weeks now. Have had diarrhea 16 times today. At 1.30, Frau Lukin brings baby potato soup with bread, as Leo left us. I have my little piece of bread with water. September 3. Fuchs provides yeast, eat with bread and four potatoes each by evening. Very hot day and plague of flies. September 4th. At embroidery department with Frau Lilly and Benedict on trial. Notification about acceptance in two days. Spoke to Runkowski. They want to rob us of 13,000 children within six days. God help us. All the mothers are crying and I don't want to believe it. September 5th. Saturday, 6 a.m. Children picked up. Judengasse, Kirschgasse, dreadful shouting. People pulled children down from the trucks and hold police at bay. Got bread one day too early and 20 decagrams, too little per person, and ate it all in four meals. Now I have none for two days. And so on. You see the disjointed yes. style, the exhausted woman who's just trying to go through this and yeah. is unfortunately failing. And in... September of 1942, soon after her last diary entry of September 8th, the last entry here that I read was September 4th. So four days later, she was deported to Helmna, and she was killed on September 11th, 1942. Well, this reference to the children, what was, what was that? That was one of the more famous or infamous uh, episodes in the history of the Lodge ghetto. So the ghettos in German-occupied Eastern Europe were administered by the so-called Jewish councils, or Judenräte, which were German-appointed Jewish bodies which were tasked with fulfilling German demands. And the German demands ranged from providing quotas for forced labor um, to providing certain numbers of people on a daily basis to be deported to their deaths. In 1942, the chairman of the Lodge Judenrat, uh, whose name was uh, Chaim Runkowski, and to whom uh, Irene Hauser makes this reference in her diary, made this choiceless choice of providing 13,000 children to the Germans to be shipped off to their deaths. Rumkowski's reasoning was that by surrendering the children to the Germans, and there was no doubt that this meant death, that by surrendering the children, he would be able to preserve the labor, the able-bodied, labor-able population of the ghetto, and in that way made ghetto labor force indispensable to the German war effort. At that time, because of the war and the shift of the economy to the war production and, and large numbers of Jewish men being mobilized and fighting the Soviets on the Eastern Front, there was a large shortage of labor. And Rumkowski hoped that by making this terrible choice and giving up the children, he would be able to make the ghetto population as indispensable workers to the German war effort and thereby protect them and uh, save them. This, unfortunately, did not happen eventually, and the entire population of the Lodge ghetto was murdered by 1944. There were some survivors, but most people were killed, including Ronkowski himself and his family, who was they were on the last deportation train to Auschwitz, and they were killed there. Now... There were and there still are debates in Jewish circles, in academic circles, and just among people in general, whether the Jewish councils were complicit in the Holocaust, if this was a case of collaboration with the Germans, and if things would have turned out differently had Jewish councils had refused to cooperate with the Germans, it's also important here to stress that Jewish councils also had the Jewish police, ghetto police force, which many of these Jewish policemen were rounding up Jews slated for de deportation and delivering them to the Germans. So there were all these debates about whether this is collaboration. But my view as a historian, I, I'm not here to judge 
obviously, uh, especially, I mean, especially judge people who themselves were victims. And the situation was a very complicated and I don't think that moral categories that we have today sitting in this room apply to that period. It was a very different moral universe and many people also, many famous people who went through this wrote about this twisting and, and diffusion of the moral universe and most famously Primo Levi who himself was a survivor, an Italian Jew who survived Auschwitz introduced this concept of the grey zone to talk about the moral universe of the Holocaust. So I would withhold judgment from this and also understand that the power relations between Germans and the Jews were so skewed, so tremendously uneven that even to stand up to the Germans or to try to resist the Germans was not... These concepts that we think about today as what is resistance, what, what does it mean to refuse something, it was a completely different universe and these concepts simply do not apply to that historical period. That mentioned, however, it is also important not to, and that's another um, task that I have as a historian, not to portray this period between 1933 and 1945 as a completely separate universe that's impossible to understand and which was so profoundly different from our world that however much we study it, we can never understand it. Some people have taken this position. I am not of that opinion. I think people are human everywhere and studying and understanding this period is possible. We also just need to be very sensitive and tuned into the large differences between everyday situations and relations between people that were prevalent in that period as opposed to our own yeah. time. I should say parenthetically, one of the volumes I don't know if this is out or forthcoming as children in the Holocaust. And so that's, that's, that's already uh, out. Yeah. That's already out. So that's that's available. Uh, more information at the Holocaust Museum. Just finally, you made reference to this right there. I'll preface this by my experience at the Holocaust Museum. I, I went a few years ago. It's, it's not a happy-go-lucky experience. It's not meant to be. Very powerful experience. The, the most impressive, powerful part of it for me, and I think for many people, is the big barrel of shoes, which I, I guess is still there, yes. which through these artifacts, these were shoes worn by Holocaust victims, and you, it's, it connects you in a very real way. But there's a section on your website, the, the museum's website, which updates this. And uh, tragically, this is not an isolated, uh, an isolated thing, the Holocaust. You, you have Rwanda, you have Bosnia, you have, you have genocide that, that, that goes on. And it's so important to remember this and try to apply it to prevent future Right. Uh, we at the museum, we also have a committee on conscience that recently changed its name to a program for genocide prevention. I'm not I'm blanking right now what their exact title is, but it's a similar subunit at the museum which studies contemporary genocide. And they are doing a great job of also identifying places and histories of mass violence and trying to showcase, to show that the Holocaust, while it was unprecedented at the time and was this central event of the 20th century, that mass violence is not a stranger to the way we run international relations and interpersonal relations and trying to raise awareness of people that uh, similar cases of genocide and mass violence are going on even today. What lessons do you think we ought to most draw from the you know, sources you're reading, the, the history that you're reading, to apply to today? It's a very, it's a question I get asked very often. I don't think there are very clear and ready lessons of the Holocaust. Obviously, we all know what the right answer is. You know, prevent hate. Don't be hateful. Don't do to another person what you don't want done to yourself and so on. But I think the most important, as I see it, the most important thing that I learn from these sources and that are hopefully coming out of these volumes that we produce at the museum is to show that even in historical situations in which things 
seem locked in and inevitable. That even in these situations, a little gesture, uh, something that people do that is not, that might not seem much and might not be guaranteed to save anyone's life or be successful, but these things matter. And that people in any situation have very, even in, in the situations in which there seems to be no choice. And they're often, I mean, the Holocaust is one of the historical events. Many situations in the Holocaust, there was simply no real choice. I mean, we discussed Runkowski. He, quote unquote, chose to surrender 13,000 children to the Germans, but this wasn't a real choice. But even in situations, in less radical situations, not all situations in the Holocaust are that radical. And there were many different moments, not only in the Holocaust, but in any other bad situation, political or in situation of mass violence, where people have a choice. And it's a comforting thought, but it's also a profoundly unsettling thought, and which calls for reflection about personal responsibility and someone's duty as a member of a community or a citizen. And that that kind of unsettling thought is something that I try to convey, to make people think about, not to think about the Holocaust as something where it's clear that it's all black and white. It's clear who's the victim and it's clear who's the perpetrator. Most of the times it's clear. But also there are many instances in which perpetrators turn innocent people into collaborators or other collaborators become victims as well. And it's important to understand this in order to think more about our lives and, God forbid, if we get into a, a situation um, like that. We've been talking with Emil Kerenyi, who is a applied research scholar with the Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. Uh, he gave a keynote address as a part of a, a series, a, a symposium, four-part symposium series on the Holocaust presented by USU's Religious Studies Program. That's uh, part of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at USU. The keynote address was titled Jewish Responses to the Holocaust from Spiritual and Religious Practices to Armed Resistance. There are other events coming up in the symposium series. A film, Witness, Voices from the Holocaust, that is March 28th. April 4th, a talk, What Can Mormons in the U.S. Learn from the Case of Mormons in the Third Reich? And on April 11th, Encountering Dr. Mengele, that is from Holocaust survivor Ava Kaur. And Emil Kirinia, pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. Coming up tomorrow, when a student first enters college, he or she begins an advanced liberal learning and in-depth study of one field. What happens when students' personal faith commitments collide with that of the professor or with their peers or even with the objective course material itself? Uh, Dr. Norman Adler from Yeshiva University in New York is coming to USU as a part of the Religious Studies Program and College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Two lectures, What Happens If the Big Questions and College Collide? And Are We Wired to Believe? That's tomorrow on the program. For producers uh, Danny Hayes and Addison Pace, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today.